at me wasn't necessarily intended to be gospel-centered advice, uh, but I believe that even a blind squirrel will locate an acorn every now and then. And the advice was this. And uh, what they said was, don't take advice from anyone with whom you would not gladly trade places. Which struck me as wise. Because it makes sense to me that if you need help uh, and you're in trouble, you need help from somebody who isn't in trouble with you. Amen? Like if your car is off the road in the ditch, you need to be pulled out by someone whose car is not in the ditch. Right? You need somebody who has, um, who has uh, some secure ground from which to move you. Uh, so you shouldn't take marriage advice from somebody who is, for instance, beginning marriage number five. Or get financial counsel from somebody who just declared bankruptcy. Or learn, learn the secret to happy and a joy-filled life from somebody who seems to be just as lost and miserable as you are. And the reality is that the world is full of lost and miserable people who because their lives look like everybody else around them don't even know that there is another way to live. A way of life in which deep love and satisfaction with life despite its trials are prominent features. But we who are, by God's grace, people who have had their lives turned right side up are called to point the way to Jesus, to everyone whose life is upside down, and to invite them to trade in their old life for a new one, which all of us who are in Christ enjoy. Amen? And that brings me in a roundabout way to our passage this morning. And if you aren't there yet, uh, I want you to turn with me over to the book of Titus. Uh, to chapter 2, verse 15, we're going to look at verses 15 of chapter 2, which is the last verse, chapter 2, uh, through verse 7 of chapter 3. Uh, and if you're able, I invite you to stand and follow along as your in your Bible as I read God's Word for us and pray. This is what the Word of God says. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we are people who have had Your grace richly, lavishly 
abundantly supplied to us in Christ. And Father, I pray that we who have been justified by Your grace might also be sanctified by Your grace. That we might point the way to Jesus. That other lost blind beggars like we used to be might find where the bread of life is. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you look at verse 15 there in chapter 2 with me, what you'll see, uh, this, is what, uh, this is what if you're a, an interpreter you would call a hinge verse. It's a verse that is linked to what goes before and what goes after and it kind of turns both directions. Uh, so it, it looks back to and is tied to what went before and it's tied forward to what's about to, about to be said. And so looking back, what he's been saying at the end of chapter 2 here is that God saved us by grace and He sanctifies us by grace and He will glorify us by His same grace. He is doing all of these things in order to fulfill His salvation plan to save a people for Himself that are zealous to do good works. And it's important for God's people to understand these things because there's a temptation always among God's people to think that our salvation is about us rather than also about God and His glory and that it's only about our justification and not also about our transformation to look like Jesus. And so it's important to exhort and rebuke people who try to separate their salvation from their sanctification and to allow no one in the church to disregard the truth that the same grace that saves also sanctifies and transforms over time. So the grace that saves you transforms you. Now it's not immediate. Well, it is immediate. You get an immediate new life, an immediate transformation. But over time you also get a gradual transformation of your behavior and thinking and speech to look more and more and more like Jesus. And God's gracious process is at work in both of those things. And, uh, and on top of that, that transformation has also an evangelistic purpose. In other words, your salvation and your sanctification are not just about you getting closer to God or God being glorified as His salvation purposes are fulfilled. It's also about serving as God's witnesses to the lost. And God's people, do we need exhorted to live as witnesses? Yes. Which is why He says, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you, and then jumps into, in the verses following, the kinds of behavior that serve as a witness to lost people. Uh, do God's people occasionally need rebuke when they aren't living as effective witnesses for Christ? Yes. So this verse, verse 15 there, chapter 2, points backwards uh, to God's purpose and His glory and the way of salvation uh, by grace and also forwards to remind us of the other centrality of living like Christ as His redeemed people with an evangelistic purpose in mind. And verses 1 and 2 give us specific instructions about what kinds of behavior serve as an evangelistic witness 
to those outside the church. And I'll just go on record at the beginning before we look at these and say, these are tough for us. This is not easy stuff in verses 1 and 2. But as we yield to the Spirit's leading, we are trained to do them. Uh, Just as Titus 2.12 told us last week about our training to live upright and godly lives in the present age, this is part of that. This is more specificity of what that means to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Uh, These verses spell it out. First essential characteristic here is, and here's everybody's favorite one, submissive to rulers and authorities. I love that. I'm so glad that's in here. (laughs) Not really. That's hard for me, right? We're called as believers in Christ to submit ourselves to every government official and every person in authority over us. So who does that include? That includes your boss. That includes the elders of your church. That includes police officers, judges, presidents, senators, congressmen, state representatives, etc. Right? Every time I've been stopped by the police, and there's only been a few times, it's been about 20 years since my last ticket. Praise God, right? They say the last part of a man to convert is his right foot. Um, but, but fun that works the accelerator for those of you who are in the dark on that. But um, in any case, um, whenever I get stopped, my you know you know how I address the person who approaches my window and ask for my license and registration, sir, or officer, or whatever, right? Is it because I have enormous respect for the person necessarily behind the badge? No, but because I have respect for the office that they hold. Same thing with governors, the same thing with presidents, the same thing with representatives in Congress or or what have you. They are the honorable so-and-so. Even if you think they're a dishonorable person, they hold an honorable office. And so they're to be submitted to rulers and authorities. And next is the related idea to be obedient. Uh, We have to, part of submission means honor, but just in case anybody missed it, he puts the word obedient in there. We have to do what such people ask or even require of us. Now, how many of y'all thought, those of you who are adults, when you thought, when I grow up, I can't wait to be an adult because then nobody can tell me what to do? That was me. That's what I thought, okay? I was so bummed out to find out that the list of people who tell me what to do it multiplies rather than diminishes when you reach adulthood, right? Um, we have to be obedient. And I have to submit to and obey everyone whom God has put over me in every realm of life. Every realm of life. And then there's this, to be ready for every good work. The idea here is that, remember the Minutemen back in the the Revolutionary War? The idea was that you're supposed to be ready to fight in under 60 seconds, right? Right? Uh, that you've got the rifle to hand loaded, that you've got your uniform ready, and in 60 seconds you're out the door ready to go, right? 
This is that kind of idea. To be ready. Not to fight, but to do good work. To do every kind of good work. Uh, it's to be prepared at a moment's notice to gladly help other people. It's the, it's the kind of thing that we're, what we're talking about when you say of somebody, they will give you the shirt off their back. You know people like that? I know a few of them. All of them are Christians. People who are prepared to serve whenever they're called upon. Whenever a need presents itself, they are first in line to volunteer. Okay? This is part of our calling as Christians because these kinds of things indicate to people who are not Christians that we are them even if we haven't got to the Gospel yet. Which we also need to do, by the way. But the way that we respond to people creates openings for the Gospel. And to be the kind of people who will give you the shirt off their back, who are eager to help, who will, who will show up and help you move even if they don't know you. Because you ask. Be ready for every good work. Moving on to verse 2. The list continues with to speak evil of no one. I looked this up. Got my Greek text off the shelf. And the word speak evil is literally the word blaspheme. Blasphemeos. It reads in Greek. It carries the idea of cursing and slandering other people with your words. This seems like a little clearer prohibition than I would maybe like it to be. Does that include our elected representatives? Yes. How about the president? Yes. How about your pastor? Praise God. Yes. Um, does it include your spouse? Yes. Does it include your boss? Yes. Does it include your brothers and sisters at church? Hmm. Okay, let's move on before this gets too convicting. All right. Um, <laughs> this is important, right? That the words that come out of your mouth should build up rather than tear down. The words that come out of your mouth ought to build up rather than tear down. Next is to avoid quarreling. Christians should not enjoy arguing. Shouldn't be something we are looking forward to. We don't pick fights with people verbally, right? Uh, we avoid quarreling. We try to avoid it whenever we can. And after that is the word gentle. Now, this is not a word that means weak. Not, you're not gentle if you're a wimp. Okay? That's not the same thing. Okay? Being gentle is the idea of being gracious and kind. So you can be, you can be strong. You can, you can be skilled. But if you're gentle, you treat, you treat people with grace and kindness. You are patient with them as you talk with them. You're a gentle person in your words and in your behavior toward people. 
And last we read, to show perfect courtesy to all people. Did you know that being polite is actually godly? It is. It's a characteristic of godliness. We're called to be polite, to have good manners even when we're treated poorly. That we don't respond back to people with the same treatment we get from them. That for example, if you are being waited on at a restaurant and and the waitress is kind of snappy and and rude to you, you don't go well, I know we prayed over this field food, but no tip for you. You know, I mean, you you show good manners. You treat her better than she's treated you, and you say to her maybe this. Well, Cynthia, it seems like you've had a hard day today. Could I pray for you before we go? You're a person of courtesy. And kindness. Amen? That when your spouse snaps at you, as sometimes they might, you don't snap back. Say, how can I help you? It seems like you've had a challenging day. Right? You treat people with courtesy. Now before we uh, get into verse 3, let me just take a minute and ask, y'all this question how many of you you don't have to raise your hand but just how many of you does this all this stuff that we've been talking about come perfectly naturally like no problem at all right like pastor i can check this off nailed it right this is hard right but that's the point this is not how the world normally works but the whole point of this book that of Titus that's written to us is that the gospel infuses every part of life. It infuses Titus' ministry to the people on Crete. It infuses the the, the way that the church should operate. It infu- you know, in fact, Paul can't hardly get a paragraph out of his mouth without coming back to the gospel again. Let me tell you the gospel again, right? In fact, he's going to do that later in chapter three in the section we're going to look at today. He's going to come back to the gospel again. Why? Because the gospel runs through everything that we are and do as believers in Jesus Christ. And it has to get into how we treat one another. Because how have we been treated? Did God respond to us the way that we responded to Him? No. In fact, when we were rebels and sinners, when we wanted nothing to do with God, when we were blasting Him and shaking our fist in His face, what was He doing? For you I will send My Son to die in your place. Do you understand how this is related to the Gospel? That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Right? And so, we who have been redeemed by that God, by the Spirit of God, are made into people who act like that God. And who respond to each other and to a world 
that is desperate for people to be like this to them. Like this. That the treatment that we dispense is a reflection of what God has given to us. That this is gospel-infused behavior. And it's gospel transformation that comes about. So look at verse 3. And this is a, verse 3. Paul says, well, why do we do this? He says, because or for or since we were just like all those lost people around us. Look what he says. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In other words, we were just as lost and, and cut off in all of our relationships with each other and with God as, as we could possibly be, just like every unbeliever around us. We were living apart from God. We were disobedient to His commands. We were led astray into sin. We were enslaved to our sinful desires and the sinful pleasures that we pursued because we didn't know back then that they were self-destructive until they started destroying us. And we spent our days not filled with gentleness and grace, but with malice and hatred for God and other people. This is a pretty vivid description of the Christian of the non-Christian life. Amen. It's what you become whenever verse three is what you become whenever you've rejected God and rebelled against Him. And we are called to live differently as God saved people in a way that verses one and two outline for us. Because we remember what it was like to be lost and to be living this way. And the point Paul is making is that if you remember what it was like to live enslaved to sin and death, then why wouldn't you want to live like God's redeemed people? So that the people who are still enslaved might see the power of the gospel demonstrated in you and be pointed to the one who saved you and set you free. That there's a distinction between the non-Christian life and the Christian life that is so significant that people get curious and go, and I've known people in our church who've had this conversation. Where people who knew them before they were Christians come up to them and ask them, and what happened to you? Like you are different. I mean, you're kind of weird now, in fact. You're sure different from what the guy I used to run around with or the girl I used to know when we were in high school together. I mean, what happened to you? And then you have the marvelous privilege of pointing them to the Savior who loved you and loves them too. So look at verses 4-7. through seven. Uh, We were just like this until Jesus graciously saved us. I love these verses. You should highlight them and memorize them in your Bible. Verses 4-7, through seven. Paul can't speak about what we were saved from without telling us immediately about the Savior again. This is like the fifth time in this book he has brought up the Gospel. Because the Gospel is meant to infuse our life. And this is so, verse 4 is all about how Jesus stepped forward into history, into our broken world, into all the lives that were broken by sin, and showed us His goodness and loving kindness at the cross. In the cross, we see God's goodness and love and kindness more clearly than anywhere else. You want to know what God is like? God is a God who dies for sinners. 
a God who loves them so much that He will do everything possible and, and everything necessary to bring them into His own family, though they are rebels who hate Him. He says, I understand that you hate Me. I understand that you've rebelled against Me. But I love you and I want to save your life. And I'll send My Son to die in your place for all you've done. God is a good and loving and kind God. Verse 5 just continues this thought, magnifying and celebrating God's grace to us in Christ. We are not saved. Focus on this verse. We are not saved by anything we have done. It is not by works of righteousness that we have done. In other words, I do not care if you gave $25,000 to the church last year. It merits your salvation not a bit. Now, if you gave that much, we really appreciate you. <laughs> okay, I don't know who gives what. Because I don't see any of the records, okay, by intention and design. Alright? But it doesn't count before God to gain you salvation whatsoever. I don't care how many boxes of Girl Scout cookies you bought last year or how much money you gave to St. Jude or how far you ran in support of that cause. Those are good things. In the case of Girl Scout cookies, they're really good. Right? I'm on a special diet right now to get rid of all the Girl Scout cookies I've gotten uh, over the years. Right? But, point being, you can't do anything to gain salvation before God. There is one way of salvation and only one. It is faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the point of verse 5. According to His own mercy, He saved us. That as we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we received mercy from God and we received the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You know what regeneration is? It's a, it's a $5 crossword puzzle word that means you were made new. You were born again. You were given new life by the Holy Spirit. You were renewed. You, um, you were born again. You started over. And God washed you clean of all of your sins. That's what we celebrate whenever we baptize somebody. The fact that the Holy Spirit has washed us clean. That we have died and our old life is dead and we are raised to new life. Not by the act of baptism, but by the Holy Spirit who worked to bring us to salvation. And in baptism, we celebrate with our body what Jesus has done in our soul. By the way, if you want to get baptized, next week we're doing that. We would love to talk to you about the new life that you found in Christ. Mercy. In this verse, this is a phenomenal word. Mercy is the flip side of grace. Grace is God giving you what you did not deserve. Mercy is you not getting what you do deserve. You and I deserve death and hell. And we deserve to go there immediately as soon as we sin. But God withheld His judgment from us and saved us in spite of all we've done. 
we've received mercy as well as grace. And we have been made new creatures in Christ. Verse 6 carries that forward, tells us more about the Spirit's coming, describing Him as being poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So in other words, um, have you ever moved a sprinkler? Like outside? That's a dangerous thing, right? You're going to get slightly damped, right? Have you ever fell, fell into a pool, right? What's the difference? You do not get slightly damp, <laughs> right? You are soaked to the skin if you fall in the pool, right? When it's speaking of the, that, that the Holy Spirit has been lavishly poured out on us, think falling in the pool, not moving the sprinkler. Amen? And it, you have gotten completely covered, drenched by, if you will, the Spirit of God. You are thoroughly soaked by the washing of your soul that the Spirit brings, that brings uh, new people and makes us new people in Jesus. And then we come to the pinnacle of this whole section. We read that all this happened so that we who have been justified, justified is a word, an important theological word in your Bible that means declared righteous in the sight of God. That as you stand before God's judgment seat, He will say, not just innocent, but possessing the same righteousness as Jesus. Because you are connected to Jesus by faith. When you put your faith in Jesus, you swap your sin for His righteousness before God. And so you are declared righteous in God's sight at the moment you put your faith in Him. And it's the status you keep for your whole life all the way into eternity. You are declared righteous. But having been being declared righteous in God's sight, we might also become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In other words, God was not simply content to save us from death and hell. He also adopted us, there's the heir part, into His own family. And He gave us an inheritance alongside Jesus Himself. Now some of you think it's a big deal to be like a Gates heir. Right? Like, oh man, if only I could inherit like some portion of $160 billion. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you stand to inherit alongside the Son of God a share in the entire universe. Beat that, Bill and Melinda. Alright? <laughs> Stick that in your pipe and smoke it, Jeff. You know what I mean? What do you got? I get, I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ of the entire created universe. That's what this is talking about in verse 7. That Jesus is that he we were that God was not content simply to say, Well, I saved you from death and hell, you're not going, uh, you're gonna be somewhere uh, not there uh, in eternity. No, no. God says, You are in my family, and I give you full rights as a son in my family. Heirs of the hope of eternal life. We will dwell in eternity with God face to face. I don't know what you got better than that. But if you got better than that, I'd love to hear it. Okay? Because there isn't better than this. Higher than this, you can't go. 
This is as good as it gets. Amen? And so, so the point here is that, is that in light of what Jesus has done for us, we, by the Holy Spirit, become people like Him. That we might draw other lost people into relationship with Him that they might also experience all the glory that we have experienced in our salvation. All the wonderful transformation that the Holy Spirit brings about. Until the time when our inheritance arrives and Jesus shows up and becomes visible to us. Is this good stuff? This is good stuff. So let me ask you a quick question. Why is all this bit here, verses 3-7? through Why do we need to remember that that we were once lost and how amazing our salvation is. I think it's there as a reminder to us that is meant to motivate us and to remind us that we are empowered and able by the Holy Spirit to live like we're called to live in verses 1 and 2. In other words, the instructions in verse 15 and verse 1 and 2 are sandwiched in the middle of two amazing passages about the Gospel. And it's gracious and merciful and good and loving and kind and transforming and renewing and regenerating and justifying and inheritance conveying, eternal hope and life giving for eternity. The power that does that. We have that. And if we are recipients of such an amazing gift as all that, a salvation that does these things for us, how can we not live our lives in such a way that it draws non-Christians we know to Christ? Amen? I mean, if you hit the $750 million Powerball jackpot, would your lifestyle change? Well, yeah. I mean, if I hit that, I'm buying a Bugatti like that day, right? <laughs> I'm gonna be. I'm gonna get any. My I'm gonna get my first ticket at 200 miles an hour, <laughs> right? It's gonna be fantastic, right? I don't know what the ticket it costs, but I don't care, right? Would it change your lifestyle? Yes, it would change your lifestyle, right? Of course it would. By the way, the church would not have any bills. <laughs> it would be so fun. To have that much money to give away, would it change your lifestyle? Sure it would. But you know what? In all seriousness, we have received a much greater gift than that would be. So should it change your lifestyle? Yes. Obviously. So let's ponder that fact together as we consider a couple additional points of application here to our lives. Here's the most important one. Are you, in fact, saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ? Chapter 3, verse 5, makes it abundantly clear that you are not saved by the things that you do to try to make yourself righteous before God. If that is what is required, then all of us are going to hell. Because you cannot do enough good things to earn God's favor and earn a relationship with Him. What you can do is receive as a gift God's grace. By putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you can receive salvation freely as a gift of His grace. If you've not done that, here's what you need to do. You need to accept, first of all, the following facts. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead to give you new life. 
to accept that as true. And then to do what the Scripture says, which is believe in that. To believe in that is to not just acknowledge that these things are historically true, but to put your trust in it such that you are building your life on it. You're staking your eternal destiny on it. To believe, to put your trust in these things which God has done. Amen? And in the moment you believe that these things are true and base your life on them, stake your eternal destiny on them, believe, trust, exercise faith, whatever word you want to put in there that means I'm relying on Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for my sin and His resurrection from the dead to give me new life. In that moment, you receive the gift of salvation. You become new in that moment and forever afterward. Secondly, if you are saved by grace, do you delight in the gospel? One of the things that's notable in this book is that Paul can hardly give any instruction at all to Titus without connecting it back to the gospel. And that is because the same grace that saves us transforms us. The gospel is not simply a place to begin your spiritual journey as a Christian. Like we, we get saved by believing the gospel and then we kind of move on from there to like working really hard. No, no. The gospel infuses everything of our lives. It's the central foundational teaching of Christianity on which your life is built and you do not move beyond it. You keep coming back to it for the power and the motivation to live as a Christian. And the more you're delighted by and amazed by what God has done for you in Christ uh, at the cross and in the empty tomb, the more you love Him. And the more that you love Him who saved you, the more you long to be like Him. And the more your life starts to imitate His. So delight in the Gospel. Meditate on it. Study verses like Titus 3, 3-7 until your heart sings with joy at what God has done for you in Christ. An amazement that God would do this for the likes of you. And then, finally, live as Christ's witnesses in the world. Cultivate the virtues that verses 1 and 2 outline here for us. Submit to the authorities, the laws they pass, and to the people who hold those positions. Not for their sake, but for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of honoring Christ your Lord. Be obedient. Be the kind of person who is ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Be courteous. In other words, live so radically different than you did as a lost person that people cannot help but notice that Jesus has changed your life. Amen? And when they notice and ask, here's the really important part, be courageous enough to tell them about the Savior who came from glory to die on Calvary for you and to be raised from the dead to give you new life and offers it freely to them as well.
In other words, be really crazy and have a bunch of fun. Because there is nothing more fun than introducing people to Jesus and to living for Jesus in a way that honors Him and results in praise and reward for you. There's nothing better. There isn't anything better out there. Trust me. I've tried a bunch of stuff that's worse. Right? There's nothing better than living for Christ and introducing other people to Him. This is as good as it gets. And it's exciting. And if you try it, if you're crazy enough to do it, I guarantee you'll have a great life. Alright? Um, so let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for giving us an, an amazing, abundant life in Christ by Your grace and mercy and by nothing we did. Father, that is the most shocking part to us of all. Because we think that we are pretty good people. And we think that we can do something that, by which You will be impressed. But Father, we know from Scripture that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before You, but You make us righteous by Your grace. Every person who puts their trust in Jesus is transformed by Your grace as a gift. And what an amazing gift that it is. Father, help us to live for You. Help us to be so weird in the world in the way that we treat people with kindness and gentleness and grace. Help us to draw many to hear about the wonderful Savior who loved us so much. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.